0: This Vital Health podcast was recorded on April 1st, before CMS had finalized its amyloid policy for Alzheimer's disease. However, the final CMS policy continues what the participants feel is an unfavorable approach towards amyloid products and the accelerated approval pathway. One of the brightest minds in D.C., Tom DeLange, recently joined flagship pioneering the highly respected bio platforms innovation company behind such groundbreaking startups as moderna tom leads flagships public policy regulatory and government affairs vital transformation has worked closely with tom in his previous role as the president of the biotechnology innovation organization bio where he was directly responsible for all their policy advocacy communications legal affairs and board governance operations he had the largest desk plaque in dc Tom and I will discuss several DC proposals trying to change the way accelerated approvals are managed by the FDA and Vital Transformation's recently released research and analysis of the possible impact of CMS's guidance related to Alzheimer's disease, which was commissioned and funded by Biogen. Tom, as always, it's great to see you.
1: Thank you for having me, Duane. I'm really happy to be here.
0: Well, you've made a big move. You've moved to flagship pioneering. How's how's that going?
1: You know, flagship is a really interesting place, right? So, um as you mentioned at the outset they were behind the innovative mRNA bioplatform that created the Moderna COVID vaccines, right? Uh, saving literally millions of lives. Absolutely. And it's a really it's a testament to what happens when you are willing to invest and work in what we call the white spaces of innovation. At Flagship, we do not deal with adjacencies. We're not interested in incremental innovation, building off of established mechanisms of action or established targets we're looking for things that people have not looked at before. Things that are, as we say, the white spaces of innovation. We're going to talk a lot about that today because <laughs> I think a lot of these proposals yeah, actually go right after people that are willing to take those risks and invest in areas where others are not.
0: Yeah, precisely. And, and you know, obviously the recent project we did was, was we had very little time, but obviously there was a huge amount of need. Uh, the CMS ruling uh, this proposed guidance, I should say, requires an extra layer of evidence to validate an entire class of therapies treating amyloid. And this has obviously been where the majority, not all, but the majority of Alzheimer's research has been going. What do you think the proposal is trying to accomplish? And what do you think they're hoping to achieve?
1: I think they're trying to, if you take them at their word, that their purported objective, really, is to ensure that they're paying for this drug in a way that's tied to further evidence generation that shows efficacy in the Medicare population, which sounds reasonable on its face. But I think when you actually look at what they're doing here and you look at the language of the proposal, it's pretty clear to me what they're they're doing is they're second-guessing the FDA's very informed and scientific judgment that, reducing amyloid plaque is a reasonably likely predictor of some benefit to patients with early Alzheimer's disease in terms of either slowing progression of disease or stopping it. CMS does not feel comfortable with that determination, and that's why they're taking this step. But this is the first time that I can think of, and I look back at a lot of CMS decisions in in you know this kind of area of coverage with evidence development. This is the first time I've really seen them take on the FDA's scientific judgment, the way that they have,
0: there was um, there was a similar sort of threat around car T's about four, three or four years ago, and then and then sort of back down. But from what we're hearing, they're saying well, we're hearing that they might not back down on this one. This might actually stay and stick.
1: You know, I think most observers think that they probably came out with the most kind of stringent proposal first, and that they will walk it back a little bit, as you as you may know they are not only targeting in this in this proposal, Biogen specific drugs. Actually
0: this is not about one this drug. This is not
1: about one drug. They've actually targeted this whole class of future drugs where as you mentioned, people have been investing, companies have been investing a lot of money to try to prove that we can reduce amyloid plaque buildup in the brain and that that will have an impact in terms of Alzheimer's disease. It's the first um, attempt to not just deal with the symptoms of Alzheimer's, but to actually get at the underlying biology And whenever we do that, whenever companies, scientists, entrepreneurs focus on this, as I said, these kind of white spaces, these really hard challenges, the data is never what you want it to be yeah. uh, it, it almost never is at the beginning and what the fda i think really recognized very rightly in this case was if they denied approval of this treatment it was going to send a terrible signal to people and companies that have been investing so much money to try to get at the underlying cause of alzheimer's so we don't want to cut off that kind of research investment you know by very ill-informed decisions particularly by agencies like cms that don't have the scientific uh, background to actually make these kinds of decisions,
0: and obviously the challenger on amyloid. If you look at the science and the data around this, the famous Nature paper from 2015 that established this as a biomarker, you know it takes 10 years for the amyloid plaques to build up to the point where you can actually have detectable levels of cognitive decline, where you can actually run the statistics and, and get a signal. Now that that 10 years is a killer from an, <laughs> an investment standpoint because you really banging your head on the end of your patent life at that point. I mean, if you look at Biogen and Lilly and a lot of these phase threes that have run there, we're talking five-year phase threes, three-year phase two or three-year phase twos, and one or two-year phase one. I mean, you're really up at 11, 12 years then. yeah, You ain't got much time left to get that money back, unfortunately. <laughs> what what will be the impact then if, if this happens? Does it just impact amyloid or do you think it cools all Alzheimer's? Neurolo- I mean, neurological disorders are a graveyard of R&D.
1: Yeah, they are. Unfortunately, and that's why I said I think I think the FDA actually acknowledged the fact that one of the reasons for their decision was because they wanted to incentivize continued research in this area, and and that's something that of course you know kind of gets overlooked I think in the in the big politics around this, but that's a really important point, and we've seen that in drug class after drug class, as I said earlier, the the initial kind of uh, treatments that go into a new space often aren't the best ones. Um, And I think we're going to see improvements even in the second generation of amyloid plaque reducing products. I think you're going to see improvements in that and hopefully some stronger evidence of the link between uh, amyloid reduction and benefit to the patient in terms of the progression of the disease. But as you think about what CMS is doing here, If you follow their rationale, I don't see why it would be limited to these types of drugs. It it seems to me that they are attacking accelerated approval, which we should probably talk about a bit more what that is. But that pathway was designed to expressly deal with this type of situation because you don't want to have to wait 10 years right? When people have no other good choices to deal with disease, you don't want to wait 10 years to see if this actually works. What you want to do is use your scientific rigor and your scientific abilities to say, we can reasonably predict that if we can reduce a virus in someone's body, we can reduce a tumor in someone's body, we could reduce plaque buildup in the brain, that there's probably going to be some benefit for people. And let's Get that treatment out to people. Let's follow those people and see how it goes. And if, in fact, it doesn't work, all we've done is we've spent some money, that maybe we didn't need to spend, but at the end of the day, we would have never really been able to know without going through that experiment. And you can't just do all of that through clinical trials. It just doesn't work.
0: Right. And I'd like to pick up on what you're talking about here with the accelerated approvals, because both Scott Gottlieb and Mark McClellan, two former FDA directors, were quoted in endpoints last month that this is setting a negative... Precedent for accelerated approvals because really they're defining it around the, uh, the endpoints of accelerated approvals. That's really what they're focusing on with the CMS guidance. Obviously, this has profound implications beyond that. What do you think... Are the concerns then specifically around accelerated approval and what would be the impact if we start overturning the accelerated approval, particularly for your companies at flagship, what are the implications there? Because that's rare diseases, that's oncology products, you know, that stratified uh, personalized medicines that for small indications, I mean, that that has huge overhang implications.
1: Let's talk about accelerated approval, because I think a lot of people just think it's a faster way of doing (laughs) drugs. It's actually capital A, accelerated capital A approval. It's a designated pathway for approval of products based on different types of evidence, not different standards of evidence. And I think that's where people get confused, right? accelerated approval is full approval under the FDA. It is not conditional, it is not tentative, it is a full approval. But let's talk about the origins of it, and I think that helps people understand why we have this path.
0: Because you, you were around when that was introduced. I in, was. Yeah, you, when that was introduced. That I you mean, were don't working. try to date me too much. Course, but not, yeah. I would never do um, that, of
1: course. But um, <laughs> I, was, I, I was when it first started just kind of getting yeah, out I mean, of law school. Um, but I was around for that and I remember it because what happened was in as, as you know in the 1980s and early 1990s we had a epidemic of, of AIDS we had right. young gay men dying in, in unconscionable numbers across the country across the world uh, from this very new, highly transmissible virus called HIV. Mm -hmm. Um, And we were working feverishly as a research community, the government, private sector, looking at how we can figure out what this virus is, how it replicates so fast in the body, the damage that it does, and how we can try to stop it. We quickly figured out the virus. We quickly figured out that people with high viral loads were doing worse, (laughs) which makes sense. And we found some potential drugs, some new drugs, That could impact that viral load.
0: Peglated interferon and and AZT and several
1: things. Right, and they had some, you know, as as any drugs do in the first kind of wave, there's some, maybe some, you know, bad side effects, et cetera. But we developed some promising molecules that we knew could stop that replication, antivirals, that could stop the replication in the body, could even reduce people's viral loads. Now, we could have waited and studied to see if you actually reduce viral loads in in people, do they have better health outcomes? That's the traditional FDA model. You have to to show efficacy on the ultimate clinical benefit, which is disease goes away, or you live longer, progression-free survival, overall survival, whatever the endpoint might be. But that's the normal path. And that's what FDA was pursuing. They said, great, you can shrink viral loads, but we're not approving these products until you actually show us that people are gonna live longer or disease is going to go away. That, as you noted earlier, could take years and years. And when you have an epidemic like AIDS and people are dying and there's no, nothing out there to treat them, the question that FDA faced and Congress ultimately faced and agreed with the FDA on this is that there has to be a way that we can predict clinical benefit by, obviously good things happening when you take a drug. And what I mean by obviously good thing is your viral loads go down, right? You see slower replication of the virus in the body. That's got to be a good thing. Maybe we could wait 10 years to prove it's a good thing. Right. But most scientists will tell you that's a good thing, right? So we approved these products under accelerated approval. The first ones weren't the best ones, but it led to increased investment over time. And now we have a whole panoply of HIV products that really have made this uh, disease not a death sentence any longer. We did the same approach with cancer. So we were able to design novel drugs that we know in the studies, and we could prove very quickly in studies, attacked the tumors. Attacked the tumor cells, shrunk tumors. The question in a typical FDA review would be, well, shrinking the tumor, how do we know that patients are going to do better? Right. Ultimately, they're going to have better outcomes from the cancer. And the question is, we could follow that for years to see if the cancers return, the tumors return, the people end up living longer than people who didn't shrink the tumors. But again we should be able to use what we know about biology and about science to say, you know what, getting rid of a cancerous tumor in someone's body is probably a good thing, <laughs> yeah. regardless of whether we can prove that they live longer at the end of the day. And, and so we approve so many cancer drugs based on tumor shrinkage. And the reason is because we don't want to wait. People are with cancer, like with AIDS, have death sentences. The longer you wait, the harder it is to cure them, the more costly it is to cure them. We have to intervene sooner, and we have to be able to use kind of our best scientific knowledge to make these kinds of predictions. That's what accelerated approval is all about. That's what they did with the Alzheimer's drug, and that's what they're doing for many other, you know, rare diseases, as you said, cancers and others. For flagship, you know, the idea that we can use increased learning about biology, increased learning um, from uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, all of the emerging technologies that we have at our disposal to enhance the confidence that we have in predicting scientific results and clinical results, we have to be able to use that to speed the drug development process. Why wouldn't we want to use that to speed the drug development process? Why do we want to stay in the old model where everything takes 10 to 20 years to, to prove? We shouldn't, be, we shouldn't be in that box when we're dealing with serious disease and people have very limited choices.
0: Yeah. And if you look at the, the Medicare prescription drug benefit, Medicare Part D from 2003, I mean, the bill itself said that the motivation of the bill was to, you know, basically put in incentives to go into these more targeted therapeutic areas. I mean, it was to try and create an incentive structure to actually have people and give a reward for people moving into these areas with a guarantee using the government purse around Medicare. And so it's It's almost like you're sort of pulling the rug out now. I mean, okay, this is a Part B drug, not a Part D drug, but the incentive structures have been built, and what you're seeing is a huge amount of activity because of that.
1: We saw, I mean, you're exactly right. When when Medicare, when we passed the Medicare Prescription Drug Program back in 2003, I was on the Hill at the time, actually. And that was, that was one of the driving kind of rationales for that bill was the fact that we weren't seeing investment in diseases. Right that were predominantly among older, older citizens, right? Because there was no real market for those. Everybody that was over 65 was on Medicare, and Medicare didn't pay for drugs. Yeah. So people had to pay out of pocket. And you're dealing with a, a, a population that's on a fixed income, right, with Social Security benefits that are declining in real time, over, you know, real, real, real value terms, over time. Yeah. And so you, you, there was no real market there. Right? People weren't going to be paying out of pocket. They couldn't afford to pay out of pocket thousands and thousands of dollars right, for these drugs. So when the government came in and said, we're going to subsidize the, the prescription drugs for senior citizens, absolutely, you saw an increase in the research targeting older American diseases. And that was really important, really important in a lot of these areas. So is it right for an
0: agency like CMS to essentially be deciding, or at least through legislation, be allocating uh, where we put R and D dollars, because that's essentially what that's going to happen now. It's really yeah. by their action we're going to start saying, okay, you don't go there, you're going to start going there. And is that really?
1: Look, I, I would say to that to that question, I, I, I think about it. You know, trying to put it all in context, right? CMS is not the only actor here sure. that that is creating policies that drive sorts all sorts of different incentives, right? Congress. Has, has done things that have been uh, damaging to sort of the incentive structure. Most recently, they just cut the orphan drug tax credit in yeah, half. Right. Um, policy really does send clear signals to investors. And whether it's CMS, whether it's FDA, whether it's, um, whether it's Congress, we have seen the trend that I just talked about, which is we should be incentivizing people to invest in rare diseases. But what we've done really is we've said cancer and rare disease, very lucrative, very unlikely to be subject of of much public controversy or public pushback uh, or payer pushback. So invest in that, but don't try to do anything for diabetes, for cardiovascular, for um, Alzheimer's. Don't try to do anything there because chances of success are really low. Even if you get through, you're going to get an enormous amount of pushback from payers because of the broad populations that could be impacted by the drug. So we've already been telling people not to do this it's the public policy environment around chronic disease care among broad population diseases is already suffering. It was suffering before the CMS decision. But as I said, I think this this decision will actually could cement, if it's not reversed, really could cement that trend in a very negative way for a long time.
0: Yeah. And part of the problem, like with a large indication of cardiovascular disease, if you look at some of the PCSK9 gene therapies that have come out for those people who don't know what those are, there's a gene mutation you can utilize where your body will not absorb cholesterol. It lowers your lipid levels to you know, to the floor. It's really quite amazing. But the problem is the drug came out, these drugs came out, right around the same time that Lipitor went generic. You know, and the problem is even though it's 20, 30% more effective, you got a, essentially a free drug there.
1: Right. And so the same problem exists with um, the antimicrobial resistance. Yeah, phase, 100%. Right, antibiotics. And that's another policy failure, right? We, we have basically bundled antibiotics in with um, all other sorts of treatments in hospitals. And we've incentivized hospitals to use the lowest cost antibiotic, which is usually some generic that is is building up greater resistance in the population because we're overusing these very cheap um, generic antibiotics and nobody wants to use the good ones, the new ones. Um, in fact, you don't want to use them too much, right. but but at the same time, they don't want to pay for them. So let's be clear, that's why they're not using them. <laughs> they um, they don't want to pay for them because they're 10 times the, the, the cost in some okay. of the generic antibiotic. But we're fueling antibiotic resistance. We're in killing incentives for, for investing in, in AMR, the, the amount of um, money that goes into that is, is really negligible given the incredible uh, medical impact, the public health impact, just from one disease that, by the way, a flagship company is working on, C. difficile, which is um, uh, a, uh, a very bad infection that you get that often is recurrent uh, and is and there's no good treatments for it today. That's killing thirty thousand people a year just in America alone. Um, the broader, you know, antibiotic resistance is killing hundreds of thousands of people uh, around the globe, millions probably every year. Um, so it's not on par yet with COVID, but right. it's not that far off from COVID.
0: But uh, COVID is going away somewhat, and Hopefully. now and this just keeps coming. But this and is going to keep getting worse over, and yeah. worse.
1: Exactly, and and so that area is just not being invested in because the public policy has just not gotten it right.
0: I, had a, I was moderating a panel at Gastein a couple years ago, and I had one of the economists from AstraZeneca uh, on the dais. Someone asked a question about AMR from the audience, and I looked at him and said, hey, you guys just released a, a multi-spectrum antibiotic, didn't you? And he sort of sheepishly looks at me, he's like, yeah. And I'm like, how's it going? And he sort of says, well, I'm not going to give you exact numbers, but I'll say this. In Scotland, we've sold two. <laughs> <laughs> It's just like, oh my God! Disaster, you know. So if we're looking at what's going on now around the accelerated approval, specifically, we've got Robert Califf, newly appointed FDA director, and his and his confirmation agreed. I think it was Grassley that he would do a review. Uh, Pallone has released his new review of what he wants to do in his bill around accelerated approvals. Where, where does this go?
1: I for one, don't have a problem with Robert Califf um, as the FDA commissioner, not the CMS commissioner, Mm -hmm. the FDA commissioner saying, look, you know, people have raised concerns about about The accelerated approval pathway? Are we being rigorous enough? Are we following companies after approval to make sure that they're doing the post-approval studies they're supposed to be doing? Um, Are we following up to make sure that that we are seeing real clinical benefit for patients? Because the trade-off, right, the whole trade-off of accelerated approval is it's a bargain. It's a social contract like many others that we have in our country. But the social contract is, is that we're going to let people get products sooner than we otherwise might Right? But the, because we believe that the benefit outweighs the risk of those products, particularly for people with serious diseases and, and no good treatment alternatives. But the flip side to that is we have to, um, as an industry, as, as, as providers, as patients, we have to be responsible for um, helping the government uh, review those products after approval. Continue to look at the data as it comes in and make sure that they're really that risk-benefit determination was correct. There should be no shame in a result where some accelerated approval products have to be withdrawn later. Um, Again, as long as we didn't harm people from taking the drugs, and that's where the risk-benefit calculation comes in, but assuming that the risk-benefit is a good one, The fact that we allowed some people to try this drug in a real world setting and then monitor them, monitor the effects and see what happens is not a bad thing. if if at the end of the day we have to pull that withdrawal back. If that's not happening, if we're not being rigorous enough, which has been some of the criticisms around the post-approval marketplace, then Robert Califf, as the FDA commissioner, certainly should look at what the FDA is doing on that. Chairman Pallone certainly has the right, as the chairman of the Committee of Jurisdiction, to say we should be, as Congress, making sure the FDA is doing its job to make sure that that social compact that we've created around accelerated approval is in fact living up to its obligation.
0: If you remember about four or five years ago, you had Ben Goldacre in the all trials trials movement in Europe, which was, you know, got a lot of ink for a while. And they started doing these audits. And what they found was the industry was doing about 80, 85% compliance around their reporting. And then it came out that academics were only doing
1: 30%, 40%. And kind of everything kind of went away for a little while. (laughs) But look, you know, I think industry actually does do a pretty good job. And in fact, you know, most of the um, products that have been approved, there have been hundreds now that have been approved through the pathway of accelerated approval. Most of them have shown that, in fact, the prediction was correct, right? Um, So we know that, right? But there are always going to be examples that people can, people who um, are resistant to the whole idea of the pathway, they will look for. Those examples, where they can point to companies didn't do this or that, or this product is is um, new data has shown it's really not working, but it's still on the market and we're still paying for it. There's always going to be those examples, and there should always be a process by which the FDA and industry work together to resolve those. If we're not doing that as well as some people on the Hill might like, or some people in academia might like, we should look at that, and that's Robert Califf's job. I have no problem with him saying that he wants to make sure we're, we're living up to the bargain of accelerated approval on behalf of patients. This, though, with the CMS is completely different, yeah. right? It is not their jurisdiction or their authority, right, on scientific matters. And, and they are, no matter what they, how they want to couch this, they are the largest payer. And everything they do is going to be viewed by investors, by entrepreneurs, by scientists, through the lens of budget, and that they don't want to pay for these products right and so they can use whatever excuse they want um, but at the end of the day that's how it's viewed is they are doing this with with the alzheimer's drugs because they're they they do not want to pay for them
0: we worked together on ipi we worked together on hr3 in your previous role every time we looked at these proposals these regulatory proposals and we ran the numbers it became obvious that no one had ran the numbers. <laughs> you know, it became these are proposals that are political proposals that no one's actually done the math on, really. You know, the CMS guidance, for example, we looked at the cohort, you know, the most active cohort of the forty five drugs that had the best data right now. Currently there's one hundred trials that are registered and we found forty five with, with good data. We ran a three year delay, just a three year delay. Um, now, I talked to George Radenberg yesterday. He says it's probably going to take eight years to do the confirmatory trial. So we only looked at a three-year delay. And it, it tanked 93% of the cohort became negative return on investment. There was no money there. You know, We've seen this with IPI, MFN, HR3, Build Back Better, all of these proposals. Is it just right now that this is the next in line that they can target? Is that is this just political?
1: Yeah. And it's, you know, it, it, I, I think it I don't want to say whether it's political or not. I will say it, it certainly is generated from, I think, the the kind of concern around drug pricing more generally, right? We have seen this um, go on for several years now, but well before CMS entered the fray with, with the Alzheimer's drugs. We've seen state Medicaid agencies asking CMS to waive the rules around covering Yeah. All drugs approved by the FDA in the Medicaid program. Yeah, the
0: 1115 waivers yes. and all that and stuff. And so yeah.
1: Massachusetts tried that several years ago. Oregon is still trying it now. Um, very disparate states across different, different coasts. But what we see is a very common kind of thread through academia, through some of the expert think tanks, through state Medicaid agencies, a, a thread of commentary and um, assertions that focus on. On the question of why Medicaid should have to pay for drugs approved under accelerated approval when they haven't been proven to work, and I'm putting "proven" in air quotes, in air quotes for people for, who, who can't see, uh, can't us right see me right now. <laughs> um, and and so that trend has been going on now for probably four or five years. This idea that somehow accelerated approval, we shouldn't have to pay for those products because they're not really um, proven. And I that goes back to what I said earlier about. You have to understand what the accelerated approval process is. It is, in fact, a full FDA approval. Right. It is not some kind of speculative approval. It is using different methods of scientific evidence and analysis to get to the same level of confidence in the standard that is in the statute, which is substantial evidence of safety and efficacy. Right? So this is a part of a larger trend of people trying to figure out how they can reduce their drug spending. Absolutely.
0: The U.S. has always seen the FDA decision as the final decision, as it were. Now with CMS sort of adding another hoop there, it's acting in some ways more like a European-style HTA. It's sort of adding essentially an HTA type of process. Now, some could say it's also sort of like a bad insurance agency who doesn't want to pay for something. Okay, fine. We've heard that as well. But what are the impacts then if we are starting to basically have CMS act as a de facto HTA through the back door? What, what, what is that? What are the implications of that?
1: Well, I think this sort of gets to the broader fiction, right? That governments negotiate drug prices and other air quotes for yeah, exactly. your, for your listeners um, <laughs> under, around negotiation. Um, you know, you can call whatever you want, HTAs, cost effectiveness, comparative effectiveness, government negotiation. At its core, we know that when the government does this, they are actually acting as price setters, right? Um, you cannot negotiate with a government agency that controls your access to the market, right? So when they say- Well, particularly it, when it's 70, 80% of the market. Exactly, in this case with Alzheimer's, yeah. for sure. So again, it gets to that, that, that question of, you know, um, where do you target your investment, right? right? So if Medicare is the entity that's gonna be paying for most of your drug- Then you're going to be really worried about Medicare becoming like an HTA or even worse, because I don't even see this as HTA analysis. I see this as, as I said, second guessing the scientific judgment of whether a product should have been approved in the first place. They're not saying they're not doing any kind of hta analysis in their in their guidance right they're not trying to d- discern the value and put a put a price on the value to the healthcare system from the drug if they were doing that you know you could argue that's sort of reasonable but we'll get to why that's not but that's not what they're doing. They're simply just saying we're not gonna cover this except in through these very, very controlled clinical because trials.
0: Because we don't like the approval pathway which it took.
1: Exactly. Now, so granted, that's a different situation. But
0: but, but granted, I will say that, I mean it was a messy approach, okay, with this one particular asset. But leaving that aside, that's between the company and FDA and their God. I mean, this is this is these are the regulatory rules that are there. I mean, to sort of overrule that ex post facto. Well,
1: it, it, it's just unprecedented. And yeah. so as as going back to the, you know, we're investors, we we concede of our own inventions. We fund them um, through our own capital and through capital that we raise outside. We look at um, the process of, of investing as one where you look at the rules of the game, as you just said, Uh, What are those rules? The precedents that have been established, and what we can expect from FDA, what we can expect from CMS, what you can expect from Medicaid, and that helps you think about the different markets, right? Um, That you might go, that you might pursue the different type of drugs that you might go into. And so, for us, the precedent here is really alarming because it is it is contrary to all the other precedents. This is not a situation where. For example, CMS has the ability, of course, to deny coverage. They always have had that ability, even if it's been FDA approved. They just have not really used it. What's really concerning in this case is it's not a situation where CMS might say, for example, um, FDA approved a product for a particular indication for a particular population that really isn't represented in Medicare. And it wasn't studied in senior citizens. We really don't know how that condition works in senior citizens, it's not a prevalent one. Um, And so we want to maybe put some guardrails around its use, make sure we are using it properly in the Medicare population because that's not really what FDA focused on. That you can understand maybe as as the kind of Medicare agency that's sort of their role. But this was a product that was designed and developed and delivered for Medicare beneficiaries specifically, Um, specifically for them so that's why it's such a aberration right the idea that that CMS would say well we're not really sure it's reasonable or necessary which is the CMS standard for Medicare beneficiaries to take this product I'm trying to understand how that could be true if the FDA actually said there is a benefit for people with early Alzheimer's, that does not seem to correlate together. It doesn't seem to match up in any way. You have two different government agencies, both reporting to the same Secretary of Health and Human Services, by the way, right? Two of them reporting to the same to the same guy, who really seem to be taking very different approaches. And and investors, that that's like anathema to investors. Oh yeah. Where, because now you have two government agencies in the same department. And they're basically coming at you with completely different um, rules and standards.
0: Harry Bowen, our, our staff economist, our, our consulting economist, he used to work, for, he did a, a stint in the U.S. Department of Labor. When we did the podcast with him, we, we, when we released the results, his comment was, someone needs to stay in their lane. You know, yes. that was how he, he <laughs> called it. <laughs> Richard Mason, who's the CEO of Apollo Therapeutics, the VC firm. I I recently moderated him on a panel, and he made the point that, look, you know, when we are doing our ROI calculations, we're only looking at the United States. I mean, this is really, without the U.S., we don't have a market. What does this do, I mean, putting on your old bio hat, maybe, and and thinking in terms of flagship and you guys bringing hard-to-treat therapeutics to market, what does this do then for the sector as a whole, globally, because so much of this R&D is we've worked together in our research, you know, 80, 85% now of all the liquidity for early stages coming here to the U.S. You know, Q1 of 2020 before COVID hit, 80% of the listings on NASDAQ were biotech listings. Really? Yeah. I mean, it's a Damn. crazy statistic, but that's just how dominant the equity markets have been in the U.S. to biotech. Well, what does this say then if this happens? I mean, this is going to have huge, huge unintended consequences from early stage biotech VC. I mean, your company, this is
1: going to have enormous impacts Well, you know, because you've done a lot of the work, Dwayne, right, that over the years. We counted the math. We counted
0: up the numbers, I guess. Yeah,
1: But you've done the work that's looked at what has happened when Europe um, actually moved away from a free market for drugs into a very uh, heavily HTA, heavily government price setting mode for for, uh, new medicines. And while HTAs sound reasonable in, in theory, in practice, they have not been. You know the, you know the rates, right, of denial of, of, of products. In fact, HTAs r- rarely see the value in innovation um, that patients or doctors see in that innovation.
0: 544 days to get a drug reimbursed in France after EMA approval now. We're almost up to two years. Really? That's the average.
1: Right. So, and again, those delays, we see them, by the way, not as long as that, but close to that in the United States with respect to Medicaid. Sure. And the reason is the same, right? These are Medicaid, like the foreign health systems are fixed budget healthcare systems. They are trying to essentially ration care. And they do that by basically delaying access to new innovations, which they did not budget for. I mean, let's just call a spade a spade, right? Right. That's what's going on in Medicaid. There's been a long troubled history of Medicaid denying access or delaying access to new innovations. You see that in other parts of the world all the time. This, the studies are, I think, very consistent. They're very clear. Americans get much earlier access to new innovations. In fact, a lot of things that the FDA has said are breakthrough products often don't get paid for in other countries because they don't view them as sufficiently innovative or they, view the, or they don't want to pay for them even if they are innovative. <laughs> so that is just a whole nother world it, you know both literally literally and figuratively a whole nother world very kind of um, foreign to the u.s approach with cms now Starting coming to in incorporate here, that yeah th- we're the last bastion of of that kind of free market approach and therefore the impact of the u.s going down this road is going to be so much greater than those other countries because we are as you said really the biggest market for drugs, and we are the ones that are willing to pay an innovation premium for new products, and the rest of the world is has shown a very clear willingness to deny those access to their patients.
0: You, know, you and I have both—you obviously far more than me—but you know, we, we do occasionally knock around the halls of, of the Hill, and and meet the people who are writing these legislative proposals and uh, guidances, and increasingly, what we're hearing what we've been hearing at our firm at Vital Transformation is, well, you know, if um, we get less R&D, we get less drugs, that's okay. It doesn't matter, you know. Uh, how do you respond to that?
1: So, you know, uh, that's the argument that kind of makes me the most upset personally, right? I can, I've heard lots of other arguments from proponents of government price setting and, and um, you know, you can have an academic debate about them that one really troubles me because it 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 sort of tells me that those people have never sat across the table from a patient that was dying and had no option, no realistic option until some scientist or some in some company somewhere developed something came ac- came across something that no one else had thought of was able to to get the capital to invest over a long period of time and, and bring something to that patient in a clinical trial, maybe early access to to a product. And that literally saved their life. I've talked to so many young mothers with cancer that had death sentences that were reversed by by these incredible innovations that come from um, the biotech and pharma pharmaceutical industry. And obviously we've seen what's happened with COVID. The idea that some drugs just aren't worth it. I think that's absolutely true from an economic standpoint i could go through a lot of the drugs that are developed and say society probably would have been fine without that one the problem is we don't have a crystal ball no and and so that argument assumes that there's some divine, you know, government bureaucrat sitting someplace or some insurance industry, you know, executive sitting somewhere with the crystal ball and can say, these drugs are worth developing, these drugs are not. And we sort of can tell that now. I will say at Flagship, one of the things we're spending a lot of time doing is trying to figure out how we can become much more um, programmatic and disciplined about drug design and drug selection. We want to use artificial intelligence, a lot of these advanced computational methods, uh, machine learning, to really figure out how we can rationally design drugs or identify targets that will increase the chances of success and make them more effective in the real world. That should be a goal that we all strive for we're never going to be 100% on that right that's it's just not the nature of biology not the nature of science so when people say well we'll just get some we'll get, we'll just get some fewer drugs we don't know which ones those are going to be. Absolutely, I have a guess. I have a guess which not. we can talk about yeah. which ones we, we, we won't see. But no one has that crystal ball. And so that argument tells me we're, re, we're basically willing to say to some group of patients with no other options who are dying, that's okay. We're just going to let you die because we don't want to invest in a broad panoply of of potential options. We don't want to have to pay for that. So we're going to just let you die.
0: Yeah, I think back to that study we did partially supported by you folks when you were at bio, where we looked at all those NIH grants, we looked at 23,000 NIH grants. And what we found at the end of the day, 23,000 and change NIH grants led to roughly 18 approvals, about 20 years later, roughly give or take. And of those 18 that came to market, three were blockbusters Okay, three legitimately. One just barely crept over the $1 peak sales a year. Okay, fine. Four had no revenue at all, never got, I mean, even though they were approved by FDA, they never registered any revenue at all. And the other ones kind of probably lost a bit of money, maybe being back half their investment, but they basically were kind of dogs too. You know, so essentially you had three, so you looked at 23,000 NIH grants and then followed the intellectual property. And there were really only three drugs that were impactful. That's the hit ratio. If we look at the work we just did, On Alzheimer's, you know, 551 trials, three current drugs registered. You know, three out of 551, that's a 99.5% failure rate. These are really hard things, uh, and it's you can't just say. I once read something from the Dutch government, from one of the activist organizations for public health, saying, "Well, if we cut revenue for drugs, they'll just force them to choose the successful ones to invest in." It's like, <laughs> what planet are these people on? Well, I, I love that. That's my
1: other favorite argument, right? But it, but the way I, I try to describe that to people is particularly from. Uh, um, Kind of a, a venture innovation type platform like like flagship, is that you have to think about um, you know biotech investing sort of like gambling, right? It's been likened to gambling, but much lower rates of success <laughs> than going to the casino.
0: It's a roulette wheel where it's all zero green and one little right. black spot. But the,
1: but the way I think about this so with the government, the whole idea of government price setting, and well, well, you'll just you know everyone will just focus on the real you know important drugs and not do all the all the other ones it's actually 100% the opposite yeah. in my experience. It's, it's, it's so wrong on so many levels, but to try to explain to people, I, I, I like to talk about a roulette wheel, right? Yeah. Um, so if you have a couple thousand dollars and you're, you're at the casino and you're playing roulette, you'll spread around your chips, right? You'll say, yeah, I'm gonna put a few on red or black, right? You know, it's a safe bet, I can double my money, but you know, it, you know it's a safer bet. But because I have that extra money, I'm gonna actually put it on my birthday, or my, my wife's favorite number. <laughs> and if that hits, I know I get paid 32 to one, not two to one, I get paid 32 to one for that. I think that's the right odds. Yeah, I think way. so, yeah, 36 right? or something like that. So now, give me just a few chips. Don't, I don't have thousands of chips anymore to put down, I, I just have a few. Where am I gonna put those chips? Am I gonna risk putting those few chips on number 20, which is my birthday? I don't think so. Probably going to put them on red or black. Right. I have a 50% chance of making double my money, right? That's going to be a much safer bet. It's going to be the more rational thing to do. That's exactly what you will see as you start to reduce revenues and profits in the drug industry. People have less money to put on the roulette table. And let's be clear, this is a roulette table, right? In many degrees, that's what biotech investing is like. We want people to have the ability to put some chips on their favorite number, even if the chances of that hitting are so low, because that's where you get the transformative breakthroughs. That's where those breakthroughs live, are on the single numbers, not the red or the black.
0: And it's not a fair table either, because some roulette wheels pay out better than others if we're using the biotechnology Hmm. so there will be some roulette wheels that have a better payout ratio than other ones and there will be more competition to play on those wheels unfortunately so this idea that well we'll just get less cheaper drugs no because basically everyone's going to be flooding into those areas where they can get a return on investment so there will still be competition for those assets too it's it's a complete fallacy I, I, i couldn't agree with you more final point here if you could make any recommendation right now Instead of doing what the CMS guidance is, what should we be doing, Tom?
1: As I, as I kind of alluded to before, I think CMS as the largest payer and also a large data collector and integrator right, of healthcare information has a really important role that they could be playing, which is positive to help us understand the real world efficacy Of drugs like the Alzheimer's drugs. So instead of restricting coverage to clinical trials that they approve that, by the way, will probably never happen, right, for the most part, for a lot of different reasons, they could say, look, we're going to cover this drug, but we are going to want to work with The providers, the hospitals, whoever's providing this drug, the drug companies themselves, we want to put together a system where we can track what's going on with these people. We want to see, as a payer, we have the right to see, are people getting better when people take the drug? Are we seeing reductions in in plaque, first of all? Are we testing that to make sure it's working? Are we seeing any kind of improvement in in their cognitive abilities? Are we testing that at certain points Those are kind of reasonable things that CMS actually could be doing in partnership with the providers, with patients, with patient groups, and others, because we all have an interest in making sure that we are giving the drug to people who can benefit from it and not giving it to people who aren't benefiting it, and at some point maybe stopping giving it to to certain people if we are seeing clear evidence that that population is not benefiting. So there's nothing wrong with CMS saying we want to be a partner in this real-world evidence around drug utilization and drug effectiveness because we want to make sure we're really helping the people that can be helped and not unnecessarily either harming people who shouldn't be taking the drug or spending money for no good reason. I totally understand where CMS is coming from on that, but that is, but let's be clear, that's not what they've decided to do. Yeah. They've basically abdicated that because that would be too hard, and they've gone with this instead, which is a simple, um, we're not going to cover it.
0: Tom, it's always great to see you. It's nice to see you at Flagship. It's a hell of a great firm. Uh, We wish you all success there, my friend.
1: Thank you very much. I'm very excited to be there, and I was excited to be here today with you. (laughs) Thanks, Tom. While the project analysis discussed in this podcast
0: of CMS's policy for Alzheimer's disease was funded by Biogen, the opinions expressed in this Vital Health podcast are strictly those of Vital Transformation, LLC, and our guest, Tom DeLange. Biogen had no input into its content or production. The executive producer of the Vital Health Podcast is Dwayne Schultes. Our editor is Jonathan Ballin. Our project manager is Gwen O'Loughlin. This Vital Health Podcast is a production of Vital Transformation, LLC, copyright 2022.